Let's turn now to the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we'll read the first 20 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Connect with our scripture reading. I also turn to Article 10 of the Belgic Confession, the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only Son of God, eternally begotten, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature. He is one in essence with the Father, co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father and the reflection of his glory, being in all things like him. He is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. Moses says that God created the world, and John says that all things were created by the Word, which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world by his Son. Paul says that God created all things by Jesus Christ. And so it must follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ already existed when all things were created by him, 
Therefore the prophet Micah says that his origin is from ancient times, from eternity. And Hebrews says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. So then, he is the true, eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at uh, the very heart of our, our Christian confession, is the fact that salvation is of the Lord. Those were words that Jonah spoke from the midst of the belly of the, of the fish. Salvation is entirely of God. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. And, uh, this, this glory of, uh, of God as the only Savior is, uh, something that He will not share. It's not something that, uh, any mere creature could ever participate in. And that really is a starting point also of our, of our understanding, uh, not only of salvation in general terms, but our salvation in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we confess to be our Savior. And so here our view of Christ is just absolutely critical. Uh, we confess that salvation is through Christ and from Christ, and it's to his glory. Now, we are either mistaken by that confession or, of course, Christ must himself be true and eternal God. If salvation is in Christ and Christ is not God, well, then salvation would not be from God alone. That's obvious. Now, it's just kind of just a logical inference that we draw. Uh, but we know that uh, this truth that we confess here in Article 10 concerning the deity of Christ is absolutely central and essential uh, to the Christian faith. And uh, we, we know that, not simply from any kind of logical deductions, but uh, from the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of God's Word. In John chapter 2, we read that he who denies the Son does not have the Father either. And that includes any kind of denial of the Son, as he truly is the eternal Son of God. Any other view of, of Christ and any other view of his sonship uh, is, in effect, a denial of his true identity, because the Son is himself God. According to Scripture, uh, we believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only Son of God, eternally begotten, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature. And this is not simply then a, a point of, of orthodoxy, but it is a joyful and, and heartfelt confession of our faith. We joyfully confess the divine glory of Christ. It occurred to me as I uh, uh, organized and prepared sermons for today and tomorrow that uh, there's an obvious common theme to these sermons. And I think the word glory is found in each of the the themes or titles, and they all pertain to uh, the glory of Christ, and they all pertain to his divine glory. And I thought, well, that's a little bit repetitious, but that's okay, because that's the great uh, theme of our salvation, and it's presented in such manifold richness in Scripture that it's an inexhaustible theme. So although there is some overlap, I trust that the repetition will just simply uh, edify us 
as we focus our attention upon our great and glorious Savior. We joyfully confess the divine glory of Christ, and we see that divine glory, according to Scripture, in the description of Christ, the the different words that are used in our confession, taken from God's Word to describe Him. There are three uh, specific designations that Scripture gives uh, concerning Christ that we want to consider under this point. The first being that He is the only begotten Son. Now that language, the only begotten Son, we ought not to hear in this designation uh, the fact of the holy conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary. Now, indeed, the one who was thus conceived was the only begotten son. But that language, only begotten, does not refer to that uh, point in time when the human nature of our Savior was begotten by a divine miracle in the womb of a virgin. Indeed, that's the miracle of miracles. But the language, only begotten son, though it refers to him, it's not a reference to the time in which he was begotten. Because we are not to think of uh, the begotten Son as ever having been begotten in time. It's a description of his eternal relationship to the Father, a relationship that had no beginning. His goings forth have been from of old. That is, concerning the one who was born in Bethlehem, even from everlasting, as our confession cites from uh, Micah, Chapter 5, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world. The one who came into the world was begotten from eternity. And then he was conceived and born of a virgin as he took upon himself human nature. So it's important that we're, we're clear, at least on that point, concerning this language of the only begotten son. Our confession makes clear that this is utterly opposed to the notion of him being made or created. You see, this is where uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are modern-day Aryans, fall into such a deadly error. Because they, resu- they regard Christ as being a creature. Yes, the greatest of creatures, one who existed before the creation of the world, but they regard him as inferior to God. In fact, they will even try to enlist verse 15 of uh, Colossians chapter 1 uh, into the service of this error, where it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, uh, it has been rendered the firstborn of creation. And that language has led Arians to say, well, see, that associates him with creation in an exalted position, but he's of the creation, he's just the first one. Well, that's to misunderstand the significance of this language of uh, of firstborn in this passage. Uh, as uh, we've seen, it's not reference to uh, any kind of birth. For one thing, verse 18 uses the same language where it says of Christ that he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. And so that language firstborn is not identifying him as one who has actually been born in time with respect to his eternal deity. No, it's a la- it's language of scripture that, that designates him as one who is 
in a position of supremacy. He is the preeminent one. It's used that way in in uh, Psalm 89, for example, which is also a messianic psalm concerning uh, Christ. He is described in verse 27, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It speaks of his supremacy. And our translation actually is correct in, in, uh, in using that word over. He is the firstborn over all creation, over every creature, because this language of firstborn places him in that uh, position of supremacy. Again, as the next verses so clearly make, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, who is the beginning. Now that is language that can only properly be understood of God. In the beginning, God, before creation, before any creature, there was God and God alone dwelling in the eternal fellowship of his three-personed glory. There was no time. Time itself is a creature. And so this is language that speaks of Christ in his exalted position of supremacy, preeminence overall as the creator. It's his relationship to creation that's in view here. Not indicating that he is somehow himself some part of creation. By this language then, only begotten, we do not think of any beginning of Christ, but rather of a relationship with the Father that is eternal. He is the only Son. He is the Father's own Son. And that in itself, understood properly, involves deity. It involves equality with God. It's very interesting that the Jews understood this. In John chapter 10, uh, we have these words of our Savior in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered him, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, how did he make himself God? He declared his oneness with the Father. He speaks of himself as the Son of God. Now, were the Jews mistaken? Were they mistaken in thinking that son, such language is a claim to equality with God? Or did they fail to hear Jesus correctly? Well, if that were the case, he easily could have cleared things up in a hurry. Or did he say such things? And were they correct in concluding that he was claiming equality with God? Well, then the question is, is it true? Because if it's true, they should worship him. And they should receive the revelation of God in the flesh. And if it's not true, they are right. He spoke blasphemy. And that was the formal charge for his execution and crucifixion. Blasphemy. You know, in effect, the Arians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, say, well, he deserved it. 
Because he's not equal with God. He's a great exalted creature, but he's not equal with God. Well, a claim to be equal with God for someone who is not a creature, who is a creature, is blasphemy. And it deserves the death penalty, according to God's word itself. So I think the Arians, they have kind of a problem here. The reality is that Jesus is indeed equal with God, and the Jews understood that. And this is the second time in which they tried to kill him because he made himself equal with God. You can also read of it in John chapter 15, where Jesus Jesus made clear that the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. He's the only begotten Son, a designation which proclaims his deity. There's also the language of Scripture referring to Christ as the image of the Father. Now we know that God created man in his own likeness, in his own image. We learn of that in Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible itself leads us to see that in terms of uh, man's unique identity and relationship to God uh, as a moral spiritual being who is also originally characterized by a true knowledge of God, righteousness, and holiness. And that means that man in a creaturely way, reflects the some of those communicable attributes of God, those moral attributes of God that made man in the likeness of God. But in the case of the Son, it's not as if some attributes in a limited measure were possessed by him, but rather the exact likeness and representation of all that God is, is true of the Son. The letter to the Hebrews makes makes that clear also in the, the language with which Christ is described. In verse 2 it says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, right? There's that firstborn imagery, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The express image of his person. The, the exact image, if you will. And that doesn't mean a duplicate. That, that doesn't mean a kind of replica, but rather an image that partakes of the very, the very substance or the essence of the Father and yet is distinguished from Him in person. He is co-essential with the Father. Very God of very God. And so as image, the Son also manifests the perfection of the Father. Listen again to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. God himself, the invisible, immortal God, made visible in Christ so that he could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The reality of the divine being, the divine identity manifested as chapter 2 says, in bodily form. In him, all the fullness of God, of the Godhead, dwells bodily. Yeah, there's a sense, brothers and sisters, in which we must indeed stop here and marvel and wonder and worship. That the eternal God, infinite in glory, is manifested in his true identity as who he really is in his Son who took on bodily form, not some uh, fabricated, 
miraculous body in the sense that it was altogether of a different order than our own bodies, but he took upon himself our own nature. God manifested in the flesh as the image of the Father. And then thirdly, the reflection or the effulgence is another older term that's used to describe uh, Christ. It's it's uh, spoken there in that passage from Hebrews that I just quoted that speaks of Jesus as the brightness or the, the outshining of his glory. The outshining of his glory. That's not simply a matter of the reality of, of uh, the Son of God manifesting the Father to us, but rather it describes uh, an eternal outshining of the glory of God in his Son. Think of Jesus' high priestly prayer as he has finished the work that he undertook for our redemption. And he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the world. That glory was was hidden. That glory was covered in the reality of his his, uh, flesh, in its weakness, his incarnate humility. But the Son resumes a kind of glory that he possessed eternally in terms of its actual manifestation. That glory, which was that cause of of mutual uh, pleasure, as we read from uh, Proverbs chapter 8. You recall how uh, Article 9 refers to the Son of God as the wisdom of God. And that's, that's a reference, among other passages, to this passage in Proverbs chapter 8, in which wisdom is personified. It's spoken of as a person. And that's figurative language, but it is also revelation of the reality of the person who indeed is the embodied wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. And so what it says here of wisdom is true of our Savior. When he says, I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. These are some of the passages of Scripture in which we are called to see by faith the divine glory of Christ. Uh, Through these uh, marvelous words whereby he is uh, described in God's word. But secondly, we see uh, the divine glory of Christ in his divine works. That are that means works which only God can do, and they are attributed to Christ. Think in very broad terms of the fact that God is the only Savior, something that is repeated again and again, for example, in Isaiah chapter Chapter 45, truly, we read, you are a God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Verse 17, in contrast to idols, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord. Verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Let's repeat it. There is one God, one Savior. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. There is no other God but God, and there is no other Savior but God. You shall call his name Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Son of David, have mercy upon me. Jesus, save me. Yes, he is a divine Savior. He has power on earth to forgive sins. And at his name, this name Jesus, which means Savior, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. He does divine works. That is, he does what only God can do. He is the Savior. Only the true God is the creator. And that sets the true and living God apart from every idol God. Jeremiah 10 verse 11 says, The gods who have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Nothing so uh, declares that God is supreme over all than the fact that he is the one and only creator. Think of God's revelation to Job, how he interrogates him and manifests his glory and his sovereign power by uh, questioning him about creation. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And on and on and on, revealing his supremacy as the creator. And that's why the most exalted descriptions of Christ proving his divine glory identify him as co-creator. That's what we read in Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 30. He was present with him, active with him. By all him, by him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1, verse chapter 3. And then there are those verses again in Colossians chapter 1, which so, are so abundantly clear, where it says that uh, by him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And that's significant language too, because it identifies uh, Christ not only as the creator, but as the ruler, as the one who is sovereign over all, right? I, I, I uh, teach the catechism uh, students to memorize two words when it comes down to the doctrine of God's providence. God upholds all things and he governs all things. In him, all things consist, Colossians says, so that without his everywhere present power, everything would sink back into the nothing from which it came. We have no independent existence. We live and move and have our being in God. It's by God's will that we breathe. It's by God's will that our hearts beat, that our blood flows, that we have any existence whatsoever, upholding all things by the word of his power. That's the description of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. And he is the head. He's the ruler. He's the head over all things for the church. Yes, God indeed governs all things and upholds them. And his son is active with the Father in these very things, no less than the Father. Or we could move to one other kind of a summary statement, that is that the purpose of all things centers upon the Son of God. God is worshipped 
as him for whom are all things. He created all things. He created them for his own glory, for his own honor, for his own pleasure. You have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. And we read of Christ in verse 16 that all things were created through him and for him. For him. Yes, to the Son belongs the same honor, the same glory, the same worship as the Father. His deity is manifested by his divine names, the descriptions given to him, given of him by his divine works. And then thirdly, in his relationship to us. You know, the last sentence of uh, Article 10 uh, gets very practical, doesn't it? This is no cold, uh, heartless uh, description of orthodoxy here without, without uh, warmth, without hearts of faith. The Son of God, for number one, is one whom believers invoke. He is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke. Now, again, that's a word that is not used in our ordinary speech. Sometimes we hear the word invocation, the beginning of a formal service of some kind. Well, that's prayer, right? Invoking God, calling upon him. We call upon him for help. We call upon him for salvation. That was the response of faith to Jesus when he walked upon earth. We've already heard some instances of that. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Faith in Christ means calling upon him. He is the Lord that is uh, in view in Romans chapter 10, where it says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You look at the context. It's clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he is the true and eternal God? You know that there is really no no evidence of that, unless it's simply evidence of a kind of correct notion that you have in your mind. But there is no real meaningful evidence of that without calling upon the Lord. Because that's where the knowledge of this truth really leads It leads to calling upon him. Secondly, he is also the one we worship. And uh, we know that worship of any creature is constantly forbidden in the Bible. Angels refuse to accept it. But Jesus never refused such honor. Even when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, confronted with a resurrected Savior. In Revelation 5, verse 13, we read that every creature cries blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Such worship is demanded. It is our delight. And the Lamb is worthy, as the book of Revelation also says, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We need to remember that when it comes down to the question, why do we gather twice on Sunday? Is that really necessary? Can't we learn enough through one service? Can't we be religious enough by worshiping once? Well, we need to remember that we are called to worship. I don't think we're in danger of worshiping God too devoutly, too frequently, 
I think the danger is to kind of forget the significance of what we do when we come together. I, I, I'm speaking for myself. It's like, oh, I have this other doctrinal article to explain. I, I need to try to come up with edifying things to include in prayer. Well, is there any shortage of things for which to thank God for and to praise Him? Isn't it good to enumerate His wondrous works, His gifts of love and kindness? Isn't it good to to count our blessings, to name them? That's what we do, right? In prayer, we're not informing God. We're not telling Him something He doesn't know. We're seeking to worship Him in a way that moves our own hearts and feelings to respond to Him. That's why we come together. God calls us to extol and worship Him. May that increasingly be our delight. He is worthy. He is also the one whom we serve. You know that the, the first commandment forbids us to work for any uh, false god just as much as it forbids us to worship any false god. You shall not bow down to them, that's worship, nor serve them, that's uh, ministering to them, working for them. But the confession of believers is also that we serve the Lord Christ. Right? That's the language of Colossians 3, a reminder to slaves that, in effect, they don't really serve their masters. They may be involuntarily in a rather miserable kind of condition if they're slaves. But the way they are to think about it is to remember that, oh, no, they serve the Lord Christ to see beyond this earthly master and to recognize that as they, as they do their work before the Lord, that he is pleased with that service. It becomes voluntary. You see how practical this confession is? In Luke 46, verse 45, he said to his own disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? In other words, the language of worship must be matched with activities of obedience and service. We heard this morning that to truly know this Christ is to, to follow him. Well, that means that we follow him as Lord. That means that we seek to honor him in our daily lives. And it may be that right here there are some of you who would have to be honest and say that you do not know what it's like to practice this confession, to invoke to worship, and to serve the Lord Jesus. Well, I have good news for you. There's nothing unique or special about that situation. It's characteristic of every one of us by nature. But the good news is the message of the gospel, that this great divine Savior came into the world to save sinners, to change their hearts, to forgive their sins, and it's almost as if he makes it as easy as humbling yourself and recognizing your need and believing that he is the Savior. Because it says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says that the Lord is near to all those who call upon him, to those who call upon him in truth. The truth of who he is. The truth of their own need for mercy, for power, for spiritual strength, for a new heart for the ability that uh, to do what none of us can do at all of ourselves. And that is to give an adequate response of, of faith to this great and glorious Savior, to honor Him by trusting in His mercy and believing that it's sufficient to save me, save me. Amen.